your scriptures and open to Matthew 24. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to take uh, the Bible in front of you and open it to page 985. I'm going to be looking and referring to uh, that text often. In the 1880s, if you wanted the good life, you would move to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Because the Pennsylvania Canal and the Pennsylvania Railroad intersected there, jobs were plentiful. People moved from all over the country, indeed all over the world, to work there. From Wales and Germany, large populations there. In addition, the valley that Johnstown is, is, is situated in is absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. Some of the richest people of that age, Andrew Carnegie and Andrew Mellon, would come out from Pittsburgh to hunt and fish in that valley. They even, they even spent their own money to create a, a uh, country club way up uh, miles up from Johnstown, and they even created an, a, a lake for themselves to fish in. On May 30th, 1889, a huge rainstorm dropped 10 inches of rain on John, Johnstown. The next day, that earthen dam that they had built to create that fishing haven collapsed, releasing 4 billion gallons of water. As a course through the valley towards Johnstown, it picked up debris, including miles of razor-sharp barbed wire from the Cambria Ironworks. Meanwhile, in Johnstown, people gathered for the Memorial Day Parade. It was a beautiful, sunny day. They were lined up on the streets, expecting laughter and music but instead were met with disaster. When the wall of water and debris hit Johnstown, it was 60 feet high, moving at 40 miles an hour. People tried to reach higher ground, but most of which were overtaken. In an instant, over 2,000 people perished, and 30,000 more were affected. Some of the bodies from, from this flood were found as far away as Cincinnati after all was said and done. And some bodies were even discovered 20 years later. The Johnstown flood not only remains one of the greatest tragedies in American history, it kind of serves as a spiritual lesson for us today. In Johnstown, life was great until it wasn't. In a moment, in a way that was unexpected, most people were, the, the, most people were not prepared for. Something cataclysmic happened. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. Look with me in chapter 24, starting in verse 29. Jesus is talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he's teaching them, and he says this, 
Immediately after the tribulation of of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to another. Please pray with me. Father God, I ask you, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak to your people through this text. Convict us, challenge us, and encourage us and prepare us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been making our way through the Olivet Discourse, that's what this teaching is called because it was done by Jesus in the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse. We've been noting the signs that Jesus has been giving us of his return. But we've also been looking, and I hope you've noticed this, we've been looking at how this knowledge, these signs that he gives us, actually should be changing our lives. Because that's, that's why Jesus is telling us this. Not just to give us this secret knowledge that we can hide away, but so that our lives will be changed. So that, so that our actions are changed, our hearts are changed, our minds are changed. Jesus' purpose is not to satiate our curiosity or answer all of our speculative questions. Instead, his purpose is to protect, guide, and instruct his people. That's what we learned last week. Jesus is telling his disciples all of this to change the trajectory of their lives. And he's telling us this to change the trajectory of our lives too. So that as we live in between his comings, this is what he's talking about, between his first coming and his second coming, how do we live in that time? Just to remind us, going back to verses 4 through 8, Jesus tells us that in this time between his comings is a time of waiting. Jesus says there will be events between his first and second coming that will make us all, at one point or another, say, this must be it. This is it. They, they did it during World War I. They did it during World War II. We're tempted to do that right now with all that's going on in the world. With the war in Ukraine and the threat of nuclear, nuclear war and the, the pandemic and everything else that's going on. We're tempted to say, this is it. Yet, we as Christians are to have that deep keel of waiting. Not yet. We're waiting posture, people. And that's what Jesus is saying in those verses. The next we learned that Jesus tells us that there will be astounding gospel growth between his comings. That's what we see in verses 9 through 14. The kingdom of The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come, it says in verse 14. As we've seen, there is slow but progressive gospel growth throughout the world in the last 2,000 years. And just as in our personal lives, when we proclaim Christ, 
Corporately, we are going to be persecuted. Life gets hard when we do that. Life gets hard when we tell people about Christ. As we share that hope within us, Christ says, you'll be delivered up to tribulation and put to death, and you'll be hated by the nations for my name's sake. And as Jesus tells us, this hatred of Christianity, of Christians, this hatred right before he comes back is going to ramp up. And it's going to be intense persecution. That's the point of verses 15 through 22. Jesus uses the horrific events of the Jerusalem, uh, the, the Jerusalem siege and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD to, to point us beyond that to the, that's the prototype for what it's going to be like right before he comes back. He says, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be that type of suffering. But then Christ returns and you won't miss it. That's what we saw in verses 23 through 28. He's coming. His coming will be unmistakable, like lightning in the sky. You will not miss his second coming. As theologian Cornelius Plantiga writes, the return of Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. And in the Great Tribulation, our lives are going to be filled with a lot of bad news. So his coming is good. And that Great Tribulation will be cut short by the bodily, physical return of Christ to earth. The bodily, physical return of Christ to earth. When he returns, and when he returns, and this is what we're going to be focusing on today, when he returns, he's coming in judgment. When Christ returns, he's coming in judgment. We see that in our three verses today, verses 29, 30, and 31. One of the reasons the destruction of Jerusalem is a foreshadowing or a prototype of the Great Tribulation, is what we read right here. If you look down at your text in verse 34, you see that Jesus is saying, all these things will happen to this generation. Yes, that's true. That's what's going to happen during the Jerusalem destruction. Yet, the events described here simply have not occurred yet. They were not fulfilled in Jerusalem. In 70 AD, Jesus has not returned bodily and physically coming on the clouds. The elect have not been gathered from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth. And the language Jesus is using here, if you know your Old Testament, it's final judgment language. The sun, the moon, the stars following stars follow, falling. I don't think that we're meant to take that literally. Jesus is borrowing Old Testament language of final judgment. You see that in Isaiah 13, the sun, moon, and stars falling language in the final judgment of Babylon. You see it again in Isaiah 34. You see it again in Ezekiel 32, the same language used in the final judgment on Egypt. And over and over again. This is the language the Bible uses for final judgment. 
And Jesus is describing the final judgment here. You see, in his first coming, when he first came, in his advent 2,000 years ago, he came in truth and grace, right? He came physically in truth and grace. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's his first advent. Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died an atoning death so that anyone who recognizes their need for forgiveness can run to him and receive grace and mercy and salvation through what Jesus has done. Jesus said in John 10.10, I've come that they might have life and have it in abundance. That's what he offers. And that's why he died on the cross for you and me, to give us abundant life, life eternal. But when Jesus returns a second time, he comes in judgment. It's the final judgment. The judgment of both the unrighteous and the righteous. The unrighteous, those who have rejected Jesus' gracious offer of forgiveness and salvation, they will be judged. The dead in their sins will be raised and those alive transformed and they will stand before God's judgment seat. They will stand before Him. Out of the many texts that people could, one could go to, to to show us this, I just went to Jude. In the 15th verse, it says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all the ungodly and all of the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. When Jesus returns, it will not be good news for those who don't know Christ. Those who have not accepted that free and gracious offer that God has given us through Christ. But if you listen to Jude closely, you heard God will come and judge everyone. The righteous will go through judgment as well. You and me, we will go through judgment as well. Believers, Christians, those who have trusted in Christ's completed work, They will go through the judgment that the Bible calls of works. And this is a purifying judgment. Not a judgment on salvation and faith. We have that in Christ. But a judgment on your works. What you have done with your life. And at that time, those who have died in Christ will be raised. And those of us who have placed our trust in Christ when he is coming down, we will be translated, transformed. And all believers' lives will be examined, Romans 2.6 says. We read that over and over again in other New Testament books, don't we? How you, Every word, right, you say, puts it a different way. All the careless words and deeds. In other words, all the dross of our lives will finally be taken away. This is a good thing for the believers. All the things that were not for God's glory, all the things that were for only ourselves, they will be burned away. 
That's, I think, what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 3. You know the text where he talks about gold, silver, and precious stones, and wood, hay, and stubble. And believers will, the, the fire will come, the judgment. Fire is another Old Testament and, and New Testament uh, metaphor for judgment. Judgment will come, and it will burn away all those things that are wood, hay, and stubble. All those things that were not for God's glory. All those things that we did for selfish reasons. But all those things we did for God's glory and for God's people, those gold and silver and precious stones, they will make it through. And that's our reward. Paul writes, his works will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, judgment, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And if what he has built survives, he will receive reward. This is a judgment of purification, brothers and sisters. When Christ returns, it is in final and complete judgment. That's what Jesus is describing here in verses 29, 30, and 31. The final judgment. He's not telling us this to satiate our intellectual curiosity. Notice he doesn't tell us all the different things you guys are thinking about. And don't think I don't, think, don't know what you guys are thinking about. All the, different, all the different theories of how it's all going to come to pass. He wants our lives to be changed with the knowledge that he's coming back in final judgment. So how is this text going to change our lives? I think in three ways. It is going to help us live in the unfairness now. It is going to propel us to share the hope we have within us. And it is going to encourage us to prepare for his coming. Those are the three. Unfair, share, and prepare. First, unshare, unfair. The second coming in judgment helps us live in the unfairness of this world because this world is broken. I was, I was taken aback by all the prayers today about how the injustice of the world, the brokenness of this world. I think it, I think it is Holy Spirit driven because of what I'm preaching today. Because we do live in a broken, messed up world. Full of unfairness. Full of injustice. It is not as God created it to be. We look around and we see the wicked succeed and the righteous suffer. We see cheaters actually do prosper. We see liars gaining prominence and power. We see, we witness murderers who are not punished. And the image of God in us cries out, that's not fair. We feel it palpably, palpably, don't we? We struggle with feelings of injustice. We see injustice all around, all around us. And each of us, at various times in our lives, maybe even right now, are saying, why are you letting this happen, God? 
Where is God in all this? Watch the war raging in Ukraine and ask, where is God with all the, the, the destruction that's going on there? We hear about the school shootings and the mass shootings in the last couple of weeks and we go, where are you, God? We remember. It just look down the corridor of history. And we remember dictators like Stalin and Mao in the killing millions of people. Has anybody here ever seen a million people together? One million? Probably not. It's unbelievable. You know, when you see those pictures of, of uh, the, the, um, in Washington, D.C., when they make those speeches at the Lincoln Memorial and you see it filled, that's only a hundred, like 100,000 people. Ten times that. And then times that by ten. And that's how many people Stalin and Mao killed. Perhaps on a much smaller scale, we ask when we are suffering injustice in some way, I don't know what it is in your life, maybe you lost a job or didn't get a promotion, or but we, we feel that injustice and we say, where are you now, God? We want justice. We ask those same questions. And what the second coming of Christ in judgment does for us as believers is it helps us live in this time. And it keeps us off the judgment seat that we are so quick to hop up on. I love what what Tim Keller writes he says, when someone wrongs us, we want justice. It's true. So we run to the judgment seat of the world, hop on it, and help God met out judgment. But here's the problem, he writes. We weren't meant for that seat. That seat is too big for us. You see, sitting on there is like the one ring in the Lord of the Rings. It distorts us. It corrupts us. Sitting on that judgment seat, netting out judgment, corrupts us. It makes us assume the worst in people. It causes us to paint large groups with negative stereotypes. It tends to blind us to our own sin. But the doctrine of the second coming helps us stay off that seat. Unless we keep our minds on Jesus' return, we have no power in ourselves from not running and hopping on that seat. Only by knowing that Jesus is coming back and his return means true justice can we be content to stay off that seat. He concludes and says, I can endure injustice for the time being because he will eventually set things right. That's where our mind has to be. Brothers and sisters, that's where we have to live. That's how the second coming helps us. First Thessalonians 6, 7 says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who troubled you and give relief to those who are troubled. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed in heaven with blazing fire and powerful angels. It's his second coming. 
Brothers and sisters, the Christian antidote to the preoccupation with the injustices and unfairnesses of this world is Christ's second coming. Second, share Christ. Knowing that Christ Jesus is returning in judgment should encourage us to share Christ. Have you ever paused long enough to consider why we call it salvation? Why does the Bible use words like rescued, delivered, saved? Why does he use those words? What are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, that is what we are saved from. The wrath of God. Listen to how just one text describes Jesus' return in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. On, on the day he comes, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out of the presence of the Lord and from his majesty. Jesus is coming back in horrific judgment. on all those who refuse Christ's offer. All those who reject Christ. All those who suppress the truth. As a matter of fact, if you look at your Bibles, if you turn to chapter 25, that's why Jesus told the parable of the sheep and goats. That's the reason for this parable. He's he's reinforcing this teaching by telling us a parable. Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, second coming, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on his left drop down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Drop down to 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I have two questions. Two questions for us today in this room. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, are you ready for this? It's an honest question. And it's one that that begs to be answered. The Bible tells us that there will be judgment on those that have not accepted the gracious offer of life through Christ says that there will be terrible judgment. It will be horrible. 
In just the few verses that we've read here today, it describes that type of judgment as eternal fire, punishment, everlasting destruction. And, and perhaps the worst that, that got me is shut out of the presence of the Lord. I mean, what's wrapped up in that last statement is, is heartbreaking. There's no light. There's no life. There's no relationship. There's no hope. If you've ever been depressed, you get a taste of that. No hope. Just a taste. But imagine that. Fullest capacity forever. It's heartbreaking. So I ask again, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you've never placed your faith in Christ, you've never asked for forgiveness, are you ready for that? Are you living like those men and women in Johnstown, Pennsylvania? on that day, that great sunny day. Life was fine until it wasn't. Through Jesus' offer, you can actually be on higher ground when that flood comes. Jesus came and he actually fulfilled God's law. He lived the perfect life that you know you can't, and I know I can't. He earned the right to go to the cross as a perfect, blameless, white-as-snow, guiltless sacrifice. And he gave his life in exchange for yours. And he rose on the third day to prove it was all true. If you believe that, you're on higher ground. The flood doesn't touch you. But if you're here today and that's new to you or that doesn't make sense to you or you've never given your life to Christ, the Bible says that that 60-foot wall of water filled with razor-sharp barbed wires coming. The second question I have is for all those here who have trusted in Christ. Because of the final judgment, is there a sense of urgency to share Christ? Does that knowledge propel you into action? Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18, we have a clear direction from God. He says, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, you must warn them so they may live. Do you know who that you is? You and me. Let me read that again. God says, when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, you must warn them so they may live. If you don't speak out to warn the wicked to stop their evil ways, they will die in their sins. That's what God is saying. Brothers and sisters, the knowledge of Christ's second coming and judgment should break our hearts and propel us to action. 
Robert Moffat, the father-in-law of the famous missionary David Livingston, wrote this, I've seen at different times the smoke of a thousand villages, villages whose people are without Christ, without God, and without hope. Do you see the smoke of Southwest Harbor? Tremont? Trenton? Ellsworth? I pray we do. People without Christ might look like they're doing fine, but they're not. I was at the uh, Causeway Club cocktail party last night. And this, this, uh, this sermon was particularly hard to prepare. And I'm standing there, being hospitable. We're on the hospitality committee. But I was standing there and I was, I had a, I, I just did not feel good being there. And I was dour. I didn't talk much. Because I was looking at those people whose lives look totally together. And I knew some of them. I don't know their spiritual condition, but I imagine a lot of them don't know Christ. And I got that picture of Johnstown just washing through. That's all I could think of. Sorry. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Brothers and sisters, we have the hope the world needs. We have the knowledge that Christ is returning in judgment, and that should propel us into action. Finally, prepare. Knowing Christ is returning in judgment encourages us to prepare. The Lord God Almighty wants us to be prepared for his return. You see, with, with Christ, there are no pop quizzes. You remember those times in school when you'd sit down and, and the teacher would say, okay, take out a sheet of paper, it's a pop quiz. And you were left with the knowledge you have at that moment to try and put something down on paper to the questions that he or she asks. No time to study, no time to prepare. Always took us off guard. That's why they call it a pop quiz, right? Well, that's not what it's going to be like with the Lord. He's telling us right here what is going to happen. As a matter of fact, he tells us 318 times in the New Testament that he's coming back. One out of every 30 verses tells us that he's coming back. There are no pop quizzes with God. He wants us to know he's coming back. He wants us to prepare for his return. We've all heard of the, the, the Mount Vesuvius eruption in, 19, uh, in 1979, in 79 AD. 
1979, that's good. 79 AD, we all know that. It's famous, you know, for Pompeii and Herculaneum being covered in ash and people frozen in their daily routines. But what many people don't know, and maybe some of you do know, is that for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks before that eruption happened, there were grumblings and rumblings and shaking, earthquake, minor earthquakes, plumes of smoke. It was giving its warning. And people were just going about their daily lives. In texts like this that we're dealing with today, God is rumbling. God is shaking the ground underneath us. Because with God, there are no pop quizzes. He wants us to be prepared. However, there's also no cramming for the final. There's no pop quizzes, but there's no cramming. We've all done it. Procrastinate, procrastinate, procrastinate. Test the next day, cram. Get everything in our heads just to pass the test. Well, in God's economy, that does not work. Because there's no final exam, brothers and sisters. The test is not momentary. It's lifelong. The test is lifelong. The test is not an event, it's the process. The test is now. If you claim to be a believer and you live a totally worldly life, there is no reason to think that you'll be safe when he comes back. That's hard to say. If Christ is not is on the periphery of your life, if going to church is just a check checkbox in your week, if you in your life in your concerns dominate your time and your mental energy, if there's no love for the believers in your heart, if the coming judgment on believers doesn't tug and break your heart. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Galatian church. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. One who sows to please the sinful nature, from that nature he will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit he will reap eternal life. In God's economy, there is no cramming for the final exam. The final exam is happening right now. Because God is watching. Do you believe that? God is watching our lives. Apologist John Lennox writes this, somewhere in Eastern Europe, an SS officer watched languidly, his machine gun cradled as an elderly Hasidic Jew dug what he knew to be his own grave. Standing up straight, he addressed his executioner. God is watching what you're doing, he said. And then he was shot dead. What Hitler did not believe, what Stalin did not believe, what Mao did not believe, what the SS did not believe, what the Gestapo did not believe, what the commissaires, functionaries, 
swaggering executioners and Nazi doctors did not believe was that God was watching what they were doing. How about you and me today? Do we believe God is watching our lives right now? That the final exam is actually taking place right now? Because there's no cramming for the final. There's no, oh, I better get my life together in the last hours. Do we believe that Jesus tells us what Jesus tells us right here about the second coming and judgment? Or are we like those people in Johnstown on that sunny day? Life was good until it wasn't. May what Jesus has told us right here today change the way we live our lives. Let's pray. Father God, and to you, Spirit, we commend this message. Whatever is not from you, erase from our minds. But whatever is, may it dwell with us forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.